Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, I think we can all agree with this statement. Beliefs are important, aren't they? Beliefs are important. Now, I realize as I say that, that there are some beliefs that are not that important. There are some beliefs that in the grand scheme of things really don't matter, and they're actually kind of trivial. Let me share some examples with us. Sound good to you? For example, for instance, I believe that Reese's peanut butter cups are one of the greatest candies in the world. Can I get an amen? amen? All right, you could disagree with me. You would be wrong. I'm sorry about that. I really do believe that Reese's peanut butter cups are one of the greatest candies in the world. Now, this next one is kind of controversial. I don't intend any offense. If you're upset, you can email Pastor Will. Don't email me. Email Pastor Will. But I believe that dogs make better pets than cats. I'm sorry. Where are my dog people? All right, and where are the cat people? I think we're about 50-50 right now. It's not that I dislike cats. I just think that dogs are better companions than cats are. You don't have to work so hard for their affection. Um, I also believe that our nation should pass a law. Are you listening? I think that our nation should pass a law requiring car manufacturers to only manufacture vehicles with built-in heated seats. <laughs> I think built-in heated seats should be a standard in a vehicle as airbags and seatbelts, especially on those cold Florida days. Not like today, but in the winter months when it's 55 degrees outside. I believe, I probably lost a lot of you already, I believe that every day should begin with a cup of coffee. Yeah. And that days that don't begin with a cup of coffee are simply not worth having. <laughs> and finally, I believe that The Lion King is by far the best movie that Disney has ever created. There have been some good Disney movies. Lion King is by far my favorite one. So these are beliefs that I hold. But again, they're not earth-shattering. They're not particularly important, except for maybe the one about heated seats. There are some beliefs, though, that are very important. The belief that every human being is created equal. That's an important belief. The belief that every child deserves love. That's an important belief. The belief that as human beings, we have an obligation to each other. We are to not just focus on ourselves, but we are to focus on the people around us. We are to care for each other. We are to look after each other that if we see somebody in distress, we should help that person. That, too, is an important belief. There are some beliefs that are so important, so critical, so monumental, that they are foundational to who we are as people. And certainly, the most important of our important beliefs is what we believe about God. What we believe about God. What we believe about God is no small or minor matter 
Rather, what we believe about God has the capacity to shape our whole existence, all of who we are, from the inside out. And so given the importance of what we believe about God, today at Asbury, uh, we are starting a new sermon series. Of course, we just saw the bumper video for the sermon series. Uh, The graphic is up here on the screen. And what we're calling this sermon series is Credo. Just one word, Credo. Can you say this with me? Credo. Credo is a Latin word that basically means I believe. And what we're going to be doing in the six-week sermon series, uh, the series is going to take us from today through the end of June, what we're going to be doing in the six-week sermon series is we're going to be exploring our beliefs about God and the Christian faith, and we're going to be doing so using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Now, just a quick definition of terms, so we're all on the same page. A creed is essentially a statement of beliefs. Of course, you already know this, but I want to say it anyway. A creed is a statement of beliefs. And when it comes to the Apostles' Creed, these are beliefs that Christians have held for almost two millennia regarding God and the Christian faith. In fact, the reason we call it the Apostles' Creed is that the beliefs contained in this creed can be traced all the way back to the Apostles. And who were the Apostles? The Apostles, we throw that word in around a lot in church, and of course it shows up in the New Testament, but the word apostle refers to those first followers of Jesus, those whom Jesus called to lead the church after his resurrection. There's actually a pretty interesting story about this that circulated during the Middle Ages. The story goes that on the day of Pentecost, and of course we're going to be celebrating Pentecost uh, in two weeks. Pentecost happens 50 days after Easter, Uh, It's when the church was born, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Well, the story, now this is not in the Bible, but the story goes that on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were tucked away in one place. Well, suddenly the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came upon them. There was all this excitement, this commotion. People began to speak in languages they previously didn't know. And in the midst of all this commotion, suddenly one apostle was inspired to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. And then another apostle was inspired by the Spirit to say, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And then another apostle said, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And so on and so on, until the entire Apostles' Creed came into existence. That's a pretty neat story, isn't it? Again, I want to be clear, that story is not in the Bible. It didn't exactly happen that way. That story has no grounding in history, but what I love about that story, and the reason I share it with us, is that story teaches us that the beliefs contained in the Apostles' Creed are not new. They're not novel. They're not modern. Rather, they can be traced all the way back to the Apostles, that while the Apostles, and this is up here on the screen, while the Apostles didn't necessarily write the Creed, uh, this Creed came into existence The earliest version that we have of it came into existence sometime around 150 A.D. So if Jesus was crucified around 33 A.D., this would have been about 120 years later. Uh, The apostles by that point were long gone. The final version took shape in the 300s or so. So while the apostles didn't necessarily write the creed, they believed in, and in many cases they died by, the teachings of the creed. And so again, we're going to be using the Apostles' Creed as our jumping point for exploring our essential core beliefs about God and the Christian faith. 
And so before we go any further, before we dive in, I want to start by reciting the Apostles' Creed with you. Typically, we do this at the beginning of service. I decided to, uh, to do it at this time. And so you don't have to stand up, but simply from where you are in your seat, those of you in the sanctuary, those of you at home, I invite you, as you feel led, to join me in saying these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. A profoundly simple and yet simply profound statement of beliefs. And over the next six weeks, what I plan to do is I'm going to break up the Apostles' Creed section by section by section, tackling one section every Sunday morning. And so today, on May 22nd, we start with this section. It's up here on the screen. Let's say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, unsurprisingly, the Apostles' Creed begins with who? Who does it begin with? God. In fact, those are the first four words of the creed. I believe in God. But what kind of God are we talking about? You see, one of the core convictions of Christianity is we don't discover anything about God on our own. We don't go into a laboratory and discover something about God. We don't define God on our terms. Instead, we only know about God through the process of revelation. Revelation. In other words, how God has chosen to reveal himself on his terms to us as human beings. There's actually a pretty powerful story about God's revelation of himself that happens early on in Scripture. Uh, this is in Exodus chapter 3, one of my favorite stories of the Bible, God's appearance to Moses at the burning bush. And so to set the context, God's people, the Israelites, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're suffering under the yoke of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's oppressing them. He's the monarch. He's giving them building projects to work on. Well, Moses grew up in Egypt. He grew up in the lap of luxury. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. But then when he was 40 years old, he decided to leave the palace. He had lived kind of a sheltered life, and he saw just how bad slavery was. He saw an Egyptian officer beating a Hebrew slave. He was ticked off. He was enraged. He killed the officer. He buried his body in a shallow grave. Pharaoh heard what Moses had done, and so Pharaoh planned to kill him. Moses took off. He ran to Midian hundreds and hundreds of miles away. He got married. He took a job working for his father-in-law, Jethro, tending Jethro's sheep. Well, 40 years, so he was 40 when he left Egypt. He's now 80 years old. Um, 40 years later, he's, he's tending the flock of his father-in-law, and suddenly God shows up to him in a bush. Of all places, in a bush. The bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And then from the bush, God speaks to Moses in an audible way. He says, Moses, Moses. Notice he says his name twice because sometimes you have to say somebody's name twice to really get that person to pay attention. Right? Spouses, can I get an amen? <laughs> or parents, can I get an amen? When you're speaking to your child, sometimes you have to say your child's name twice to really get your child to focus. God says Moses' name twice 
And then he says, this is my paraphrase, Moses, get your tail to Egypt and lead my people out of slavery. Moses balks. He doesn't want to go. He says to God, well, if I go to the people of Israel, they're going to ask me who sent me. What should I say to them? This is how God responds in Exodus 3, verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, God identifies himself as I am. You ever thought about how strange that sounds? What kind of name is I am? When I read that story, that reminds me of what Popeye would say. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I'm who? Popeye the sailor man. But when God says I am, what God is literally saying here in the Hebrew, I am being, B-E-I-N-G, I am being itself. I am existence. I am the source of all there is in this cosmos. All that exists in the cosmos finds its existence in me and in me alone. That there is nothing that exists in this universe apart from me. In fact, centuries later, the Apostle Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, well, one day he was preaching to the people of Athens, uh, these folks who were a Gentile. They were not Jewish by background. And as he's preaching to them, Paul highlights this same understanding of God that we find here in Exodus. This is what Paul says. This is Acts 27, I'm sorry, Acts 17, verse 28. He says, for in him, that would be God, we live and move and exist. And God, we, that would be human beings, we live and move and exist. Existence comes from God. Well, if, if existence comes from God, and nothing exists in this universe without God, not the plants, not the animals, not human beings, then clearly, this is not some small God that we're talking about. This is not some God who could be bullied or pushed around, which is why one of the words used to describe God in the Apostles' Creed is what? Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. The Hebrew word for Almighty in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. It means God of the mountains. That our God is one who formed the mountains. Think about some of the mountains in our world. Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Everest, these incredibly high mountains uh, that people have died risking their lives, or they've died on these mountains. They've risked their lives to climb them. I mean, these great mountains um, that our God made all these mountains. Our God created the entire cosmos by hand. He is a God of incredible might and incredible strength. When I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, there was a song that I was taught, and maybe some of us were taught this song. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll just say the lyrics because I'm not much of a singer. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Do you know this song? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The rivers are his. The mountains are his. The skies are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Theodore Roosevelt was our nation's 26th president. He was president back in the early 1900s. And 
he had a well-documented love of the outdoors. He was a real outdoors guy. In fact, he was responsible for the creation of some of our national parks and monuments. Well, it's been said that whenever Teddy Roosevelt would entertain diplomatic guests at the White House, just to make sure that everybody stayed grounded and humbled, what he would do after dinner time is he would take them out to the back lawn of the White House. Now, this is before artificial lights, when you could actually look up at nighttime and see all the stars and the planets above you. And so Teddy Roosevelt and his, and his guests, they would look up at the night sky, seeing all the stars, seeing the heavens. And then after a few moments of doing that, he would say, folks, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. It's hard not to feel small when we consider the wonder of God. And it's true, as human beings, as mortals, we are small, we are tiny, but we are not insignificant. As the Apostles' Creed teaches us, Almighty God chooses to call us His children. I believe, not just in Almighty God, but I believe in God the Father Almighty. That yes, God runs this universe, yes, God is sovereign, but God doesn't run this universe as a bully, as a dictator, as a tyrant, or as an aloof being. Rather, God runs this universe as a father of love. A father whose primary desire, whose most passionate desire is to be in a relationship with you and with me. Now, some of us get kind of confused by that father language, don't we? Because when we say it, when we hear it, we make the assumption or we think that God is male. So I want to say a word about all that today. God is not male. God is not female for that matter. Rather, God is spirit, as the Bible says, which means that God transcends categories like gender. God is above categories like gender. Rather, the reason we call God Father, this is the primary reason we call God Father, is that Father is the revealed name of God. We talked about how important Revelation is. God identifies himself as I am at the burning bush. Well, Father is the revealed name of God in the New Testament. Father is the name that Jesus uses for God in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus invites us, Jesus encourages us to call God our Father, to see God as our heavenly parent. This is somebody who is constantly thinking about us 24-7, 365, day and night. There is never a moment, there is never a time in which you and I are not on God's mind. Last week, we finished a sermon series on Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God, which, by the way, I continue to commend that book to you if you'd like to purchase it. It really is a great text. Uh, he's a great writer. Well, in that book, and I didn't share this story in the sermon series, but in that book, Yancey talks about how one time he went to go visit his mom. Now, his mom was a widow. She had been a widow for a number of years. Her husband, Yancey's father, died when Yancey was just a baby. He was only 13 months old. And so he and his mom, they were having coffee, they were spending the afternoon together, and they were looking at old photos, and they were reminiscing. Well, suddenly, Yancey came across a photo, a black and white photo of himself as a baby when he was eight months old. But the photo was all beat up. It was ripped up, and it just didn't seem worth keeping around. 
And so Yancey just casually said to his mom, you know, mom, we've got other photos of myself as a baby, so why not just use those photos? They're, they're in much better shape. Why not just toss this one in the garbage? Yancey's mom explained to her son that the reason she kept that photo is that it was a memento. You see, during the late 1940s and early 1950s, Yancey's father was dying of polio, and consequently, he had to be kept in an iron lung. Some of you remember iron lungs, don't you? He would lie down on his back. This is not a picture of his dad, but this is a picture of somebody who had polio in an iron lung. This would have been the same situation that his dad was in. So he would lie on his back, his body totally paralyzed by the breathing unit in which it was encased. Because of the severity of the illness, children were banned from the hospital, which meant that Yancey as a baby and his brother, they couldn't visit their dad. Their dad couldn't be with them, even as he was dying. So the father asked the mother, Yancey's mom, for photos of herself and the two boys. Now, because of the way his body was, just looking up, the photos had to be taped up in between all the metal knobs and all the gears, including the photo that Yancey was holding. That's why it was so beat up. So the last moments of his father's life were spent looking at the faces of the people that he loved. Reflecting on that experience, Philip Yancey writes these words in Disappointment with God. I have often thought of that crumpled photo, for it is one of the few links connecting me to the stranger who was my father, someone I have no memory of, no sensory knowledge of, spent all day, every day, thinking of me, devoting himself to me, loving me. The emotions I felt when my mother showed me the crumpled photo were the very same emotions I felt that February night in a college dorm room when I first believed in a God of love. Someone is there, I realized. Someone is there who loves me. It was a startling feeling of wild hope, a feeling so new and overwhelming that it seemed fully worth risking my life on. Our God isn't simply almighty. Our God is our heavenly Father who loves us so very much. And when you and I come to understand that love and the depths of who we are, I did this when I was 16 years old. Yancey did this when he was in his dorm room. We discover that it's worth risking our lives and our eternities on. I love what God inspired the Apostle John, my favorite writer of Scripture, what God inspired John to pen. In 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, See how very much, some older translations say, Behold, see how very much our Father loves us. Or as other translations say, uh, Oh, what great love the Father has lavished on us. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. That is what we are before we are anything else in this universe, before we are parents to our children, before we are brothers and sisters to our siblings, before we are sons and daughters of our earthly parents. We are children of the Father Almighty. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then that brings us, that leads us to the very last few words the maker of heaven and earth. Our God made this whole universe. There's nothing that exists that God didn't create. 
Now, I would be remiss if I didn't highlight that there are some of us, just like there are some of us who struggle with that father language, there are some of us who struggle with this part of the creed because we wonder if it contradicts science. You see, we've been conditioned to read Scripture in one way, primarily in a literal way, and that's how we tend to read the opening chapters of Genesis. And because a literal reading of those chapters doesn't seem to match up with prevailing scientific theories that we hear about, about how this universe came into being, then we feel that we have to choose. I hear this from youth who have grown up in the church and they go to college and they take a class and they feel that they have to choose between God and science. So I want to say something about that. That is a false dichotomy. The problem is not with God and the problem is not with science. The problem is with our limited reading of the Bible. You see, what we have to remember is that this Bible that I have here in my hand looks like a book It appears to be a book, but the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. Uh, There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and these books, these various books of the Bible, they make use of different genres of literature, different literary styles. You have poetry, you have parable, you have apocalyptic literature, you have prophecy, you have letter. And what that means for us is this, that we're not called to read and interpret Scripture literally. We're also not called to read and interpret Scripture figuratively. Instead, we're called to read and interpret Scripture literarily. You like that? Literarily. And what that means is we read and interpret Scripture based on the literary style that's in front of us. Just like when we watch movies, and you know, Amanda and I, last night we were watching a movie, just like when we watch movies, we recognize there are different categories of movies. We expect to laugh at comedy movies. We expect to be scared by scary movies. We expect to be moved by drama movies. We expect that romantic movies, yeah, they're going to be predictable and the plot's going to be cheesy, but we expect that. Well, there are different categories of literature in the Bible. So when it comes to these opening chapters of Genesis, which I love so very much, we're not reading some sort of scientific lecture. We're not reading a geology book or a physics book. We're reading an ancient Hebrew text that tells us in this beautifully poetic way. It's not necessarily poetry, but it certainly has that kind of rhythm. It tells us in this beautiful poetic way that God made this universe and that God made it good. So check out with me these words from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 10, the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth, and that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called this space sky. Then evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear, and that is what happened. God called the dry ground land, and the water seas, and God saw that it was good. I could go on, but I'm going to pause there. Do you see the poetic pattern, the rhythm of these verses? 
God speaks, and God says, let there be, and God says, let there be, and God says, let there be. An aspect of creation appears. God names that particular aspect, the light, the sky, the land, the waters. God calls it good. Evening and morning passes. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, etc. The poetic pattern of these verses cements this idea deep within our minds and deep within our hearts that God made the universe, that only God made it. You see, science tells us how. The Bible tells us who. I also think it's worth pointing out, and scholars will point this out, that during this period when the Apostles' Creed came into existence, the 100s, the 200s, the 300s A.D., well, there was a school, a philosophical thought that was really prevalent called Gnosticism. You ever heard of Gnosticism before? In a nutshell, Gnostics taught that the physical realm, that the physical world, anything that we can touch, like this wood, like our bodies, anything that we can touch is bad and evil and corrupt. The early Christians who knew about Gnosticism, by including this line in the creed that God made everything, they strongly rejected. They gave a resounding no to Gnosticism. The physical realm is good because God's the one who made it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. So when it comes down to it, this first section of the Apostles' Creed invites us into deeper knowledge of God. This God who is I am, the source of all there is, this God who is Almighty, this God who is Father, and this God who is the maker and creator of everything. Yet what I love about the creed is that the creed doesn't simply invite us into knowledge about God. The creed invites us to believe in God. What are the first two words of the creed? I believe. I believe. Henry Nouwen. I mentioned Henry Nouwen in my sermon last week. He was a Catholic priest. He was a writer. He's now passed away. Well, one time he received the powerful epiphany of how belief works. And of all places, he got this epiphany at the circus. He heard that there was this well-known German trapeze group that was going to be performing. So he went to the performance, and he was completely mesmerized and captivated by these trapeze artists, how they flew so skillfully through the air. And so afterwards, he went up to the leader of the troupe, and he said to the guy, I'm just so blown away by what you are able to do. How do you do all that? And the guy said to him, the public thinks that I'm the star of the show, but I'm not. The real star is Job, my catcher. You see, the secret is all I have to do is let go and put my faith in Job and allow Job to catch me. It's not my job to catch Job. It's Job's job to catch me. When we say these first two words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe from the depth of who we are, we are inviting God to catch us. We are inviting God to receive us as we surrender ourselves, all of who we are, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, over to God in faith. There's nobody better to receive us than God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I remember as a 16-year-old kid 
when I finally allowed you to catch me, to receive me as I was. And the amazing thing is, to this very day, all these years later, you continue to receive me as I am. And you do so with all of us, God. You invite us to believe, to put our faith, to put our hope, to put our trust in you and in you alone. Thank you so much for the Apostles' Creed. While this creed is not necessarily in the Bible, certainly the teachings of this creed, the teachings that are communicated to us, they are deeply rooted in Scripture, as we saw this morning in both the Old and the New Testaments. So God, thank you for that. Thank you for those followers of Jesus who made sure that this creed was written down so that it could be transmitted and the faith could be transmitted to future generations. We thank you that you are our Father, that you are Almighty, and that you have made and designed and created all there is. You have spoken all of this into being and that you love us so very much in ways that far exceed our understanding. So God, help us to continue to put our faith and our hope and our trust in you as you continue to use us in such ways that you deem fit. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.